Hello, I am Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at www.schwepp.net. And in this episode, we are very lucky to have Miguel Herrero, a man who knows a thing or two about ancient Orphism in all its many facets, here to talk to us. So, Miguel, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. So... We've talked already in a previous episode about the basic mythological stories of the figure Orpheus, you know, what he got up to in his life. And then we've talked a little bit about Orpheus, the author, the mythology that was written by the myth, the Orphic theogony, the rhapsodic theogony, and some of the kind of interpretive use that was made of this material in the ancient world, in the classical period. But what we haven't really talked about is the whole question of the Orphicoi Orphism in antiquity, which is a very fraught question. So just to introduce the question to our audience, we have scholars who say there was no such thing as Orphism. It doesn't mm -hmm. exist. It's a, it's a mirage. Mm -hmm. And we have other scholars on the other extreme of this kind of continuum who say, not only was there Orphism, we can say a lot about it. Um, we can talk about Orphic rights, initiatory rights. We can talk about Orphic burial customs. We can talk about Orphic beliefs. We can talk about theology. We can talk about all kinds of stuff. I'd like to know your opinion on this debate. Um, so before we get into that, I wonder if you could run through the kind of evidence we have to work with. Um, I'm glad you ask both questions simultaneously. So to say the debate on whether Orphism exists or not, and what kind of evidence there is for it. Because the debate is one century long, right? Mm. Uh, or more than one century long. But it has been rekindled, it has revived uh, spectacularly in the second half of the 20th century because there has been new evidence and, and very surprising new evidence. The Dervani papyrus, very surprising new gold tablets, and, and the bone, the bone uh, tablets from Olbia in Crimea in which for the first time we had a 5th century BCE mention of the Orphicoi, of the Orphics, right? These new finds have, have revived the debate on whether we can speak on Orphicoi, on Orphism, or we should just uh, throw the term throw the term away. My, my own position on that is that I use Orphism sometimes with quotation marks uh, to mark some prudency, and I use Orphic as an adjective. I speak of Orphic tradition, Orphic books, Orphic rites, uh, Orphic initiators, but I never uh, speak of Orphics or the Orphics because that creates a, a sensation of homogeneity, a sensation of common rights and beliefs and doctrines throughout all the Mediterranean, throughout the, the whole scope of time that we have, which are more than 10 centuries. So um, I try to avoid speaking of the Orphics, or even even worse, the Orphic, or an Orphic would say, or that. Um, I, I think that's uh, part of, of the healthy um, uh, evolution of scholarship in, in one century, uh, right? One century ago, the debate between skeptics and enthusiasts was uh, as heated as it is today, but the terms of the discussion were less refined. Right, so we've become a lot more... Sophisticated, if you want. Sophisticated yeah. in the way we talk about it, through the influence, mm -hmm. doubtless, of people like Burkert 
and Martin West who've, who've dissected the evidence very carefully and they haven't been saying, well, there was nothing going on. There just simply was Norfolk's, but they're very, they're very nuanced in the way they want to talk. So what are these gold tablets? Tell us about these gold tablets because I find them very fascinating. And a lot of people yeah. never heard of them. Yeah, they, they are fascinating also because at any moment we can expect a new gold tablet springing from some tomb, right? Right. They have been appearing regularly for two centuries. The first ones were found in the 19th century and uh, an Italian scholar, Domenico Comparetti, uh, for the first time in 1879, related them, these tablets, uh, with instructions for the soul on what to do in the underworld once she is arrived to Hades. Uh, for the first time, Comparetti related them to Orphic uh, fragments and uh, rites and the allusions in Plato and in Pindar. And uh, from that moment, they have been considered part of Orphica, part of the Orphic fragments by many scholars, even though the name of Orpheus is not present in any of them. Mm. We have Dionysus, we have Eleusinian imagery, we have um, some Pythagorean uh, images and allusions. And they are uh, written mainly uh, in hexameters. They're very small. Epigraphically, they have uh, plenty of problems. Sometimes we cannot even understand what, what they say because they are engraved and then enrolled. They, um, and they, they are really tiny. But when they can be read, you can realize that there are verses depicting a descent of the soul in the underworld and giving, the, giving her instructions, right? You will arrive to um, Hades and there are two springs of water. You should not drink from the left one. You should drink from the right one. And then the guardians will ask you, where do you come from and who are you? And you will answer, I am some of the earth and of a starry heaven. And then they will consult with Persephone or with the queen of the underworld and you will uh, walk into the abode of the blessed. What, what I have told you is a part of the text of some tablets. This in is... other tablets, we have part of that dialogue with the guardians. In others, we have a different dialogue. And even when I have said the queen of the underworld, well, some scholars read queen, others read king of the underworld. And in, in that sense, it's not clear it will be Persephone, right? There's also some debate on whether we should interpret all the tablets together as belonging to the same set of beliefs and whether these lines would spring all from the same poem, the same catabasis of the soul, so to speak, or for some other scholars, the different tablets belong to different sets. And it's not uh, legitimate to interpret tablets springing from Sicily in, in agreement with tablets springing from Macedonia or Crete. Right. right. So the, the, the text of the Hipponion tablet, which very much conforms to what you've just given, where is Hipponion? Hipponion is, is in Calabria. It's the modern Vibo Valentia. Calabria is the, the tip of the Italian boot. Calabria in Puglia and in Sicily, uh, we know that Pythagorean communities flourished and um, that there were uh, sanctuaries of Dionysus and of the, the Metran Persephone. Pindar, when he composes an ode in honor of Hero, the tyrant of Syracuse, in Olympian II, he seems to be echoing also this 
these doctrines about um, the blessed afterlife for some chosen people. So there is a, a certain logic in finding them, these tablets, in southern Italy. Right. Um, this one, the Hoiponian one, was found in 1974 and is the longest and oldest one. It's dated around the 400 BCE. Right. So just to clarify again for people who aren't familiar with this genre, these are little tiny, thin sheets of gold with an inscription yes. kind of scribbled onto them with a sharp implement and then rolled <laughs> up and included in a tomb. Just as we associate with the Egyptians, that sort of you're dead, here's your instruction manual for the afterlife. That's Absolutely. This is doing that. This is a, a, mm -hmm. a little reminder of what you need to do when you get to Hades. We've mm -hmm. seen in our episode on Parmenides, because I interpret Parmenides' account as a catabasis, and one of the many things about his account that make, makes me think it's a catabasis is the two ways that fork off. Yes. And we see this all, pretty much always in the underworld. We see it mm -hmm. in uh, certainly in Virgil's Aeneid Book 6, but that's very late, and mm -hmm. obviously mm -hmm. how much that relates to mystery cult and that sort of thing is, is debated. But um, a fork in the path in the underworld. Yeah. If you go this way, good things happen. If you go this way, bad things happen. Seems to be mm -hmm. a very common uh, motif. So that's the gold lamellae, so-called. What about this Derveni papyrus business? Well, uh, uh, before, before the Derveni papyrus, let me say something about what, what you have just said, which is really very interesting. Virgil... Of course, he's influenced by Orphic imagery. We cannot know what were the ways of transmission uh, uh, through which he would have known it. Uh, uh, probably there were some poems he had read, some descent of Orpheus. There were many images. Uh, Apulian pottery is is full of um, of uh, imagery of the of Hades and of the afterlife. Some of which is really easy to interpret as echoing this kind of, of beliefs, right? Of uh, We can see the, the people who are wearing garments and, and uh, attributes of typical of the initiate, and they are entering into uh, the abode of the blessed. So uh, there, there can be many ways by which uh, Virgil would have known this kind of imagery, but you have Plato uh, in the Fido and even in the last part of the Republic, uh, uh, having this kind of imagery of um, divisions in the in the netherworld and uh, uh, different destinies for the good and the evil, and of course these these dialogues have been said from antiquity to our days to have been much influenced by Orphic uh, poems. Right? What what kind of Orphic influence would have? would Plato have had, that's also much debated. And uh, going to the Derveni papyrus, um, since you mentioned uh, the, 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 this word papyrus, we have to think that we have these tablets in gold because gold is preserved. But of course, this kind of text might, might have been written also in and introduced in many tombs in other materials that have not been preserved. There might have been plenty of papyri with this kind of, of uh, instructions for the soul, right? Mm. Um, that, that was the only thing I, I want to say, that perhaps the gold tablets are the tip of the iceberg. Indeed. Yeah, it, and seem, we, it seems likely even, but not provable, yeah. obviously. But the Derveni papyrus, curiously enough, has been found in a, 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 a funerary pyre, right? It yeah. was, it, it's the only papyrus 
preserved apart from those in Egypt and uh, Qumran and uh, those that have been carbonized in Herculaneum by, by the lava of the Vesuvius, the only papyrus that has been preserved out of Egypt because uh, conditions are usually very humid uh, in Greece and uh, papyrus is not preserved. But this one was going to be burnt into this funerary pyre uh, close to modern Thessaloniki and it rolled out, out of the pyre uh, close enough to be dried but uh, far enough not to be burnt. Mm. So we have preserved that. And of course, the first question is what was that papyrus doing in a funerary pyre, right? Yeah. It was going with the defunct to the other world. One assumes so. And, and if we want to just look comparatively at magical practices or mm -hmm. ways of activating a text, the, the lead curse tablets have some analogies because you rolled them mm -hmm. up and through that, at least the ones in Germany at this famous tem temple yes. in Trier, you rolled them up, you threw them into the fire pit and when they were melted, this mm. caused the curse to become activated. And it's only the ones that didn't get really in the fire that we still have, the ones that didn't. Presumably they didn't work because they weren't burnt. Um, so mm -hmm. the similar thing, this is, this is the instructions for the afterlife that didn't go with the rich guy to the afterlife because it didn't get, end up in the fire. <laughs> Luckily, so he probably got lost. <laughs> yeah, he, must, he probably drank from the wrong spring. In the <laughs> so the Derveni papyrus brings in a mm. whole realm of philosophical interpretation and mm -hmm. um, esoteric reading of Orphic myths. But before we go there, I kind of want to stay in Southern Italy because there's a lot more we could say about mm -hmm. this intriguing place. So we have a fourth century BCE gold lamella that we found, and then we find later ones than that. Mm -hmm. So part of the classical period, we have every reason to think that this is not a tradition that springs from nowhere. So it has earlier antecedents, presumably, that we don't have. Now, in the debate about the Orphic. Names that always get mentioned are Pythagoras. Mm -hmm. um, our, our listeners know that Pythagoras, whoever he was, we don't know much about him, but we know he lived in southern Italy, and we know that there was a movement that came after him, which we refer to as Pythagoreanism, that was kind of all over southern Italy. And you have people like Empedocles who are clearly working within that intellectual milieu, whether you want to call them Pythagorean or not. Um, mm -hmm. So there's Pythagoreanism about in Southern Italy. And the other name that always gets connected with Orphism is Dionysus or Bacchus or the, the mm -hmm. mysteries. So mm -hmm. there's obviously an incredibly complex amount of um, data to gather. And one of the problems in the past has been because this is so vague and our bits of, of data on it are so from all over the place and from different times, people have tended to say, ah, it's Bachic, we can link it to Orphism. Ah, mm -hmm. it's Pythagorean, we can link it to Orphism. I don't know if it's possible, but I'm wondering if you could put in a nutshell what your take is on this. So let's just, just sticking to Southern Italy, let's say, in the fifth and fourth centuries, classical period, what do you take it is going on there that we might talk about in the context of Orphism? And what is its mm. relationship with these other, or seemingly other, religious movements? There's a famous definition in 1977 by Burkert in which uh, he defined uh, Orphism, so to say, as a, a sort of overlapping circles. Three circles um, uh, that would be overlapping in the middle. Uh, one would be uh, Bacchic uh, mysteries, as you said, um, uh, all the world of Dionysus, linked with mystery cults. 
The other, the second circle would be Pythagoreanism. And the third circle, which is also important, is Eleusis. Because all the mysteries in, in the ancient world were more or less influenced by Eleusinian imagery. Such was the power of Athenian uh, propaganda, so to Although, say. Surely that... That widespread influence comes a bit later through... Well, look, in the Hipponian tablet, you have uh, the mention of the Hierahodos, right? Of the, of the sacred way, uh, um, which is already a, a very um, striking Eleusinian uh, image. And in, in Athens, uh, Orpheus is considered... Orpheus or Museus, his son, are patronizing Eleusis already in classical times. But you could add also other... Uh, circles to that that uh, model of overlapping, which I think is is a good one to to define this complex phenomenon. Uh, for example, Empedocles, uh, who was uh, also from southern Italy, from Acragas, uh, modern Agrigento, he doesn't mention Orpheus in any of his fragments, but much of his poem, uh, the, of his uh, second poem, the Cathalmoi, is related to uh, what we call Orphic ideas, right? Reincarnation, purity, um, vegetarianism. Mm. So why why couldn't we uh, call him an Orphic? It's it's a matter of of what uh, how how um, broad you want to make the term. The problem is that if you if you make the term very very strict, if this and only this is Orphic, then much of the relevant evidence is left out. The, the worst excess that panorphists made in the past... The panorphists. Was, Good, yes. Yeah, the, the enthusiasts, right? Those who believed, so to say, in an Orphic church, which of course never existed, but they, they projected the model of, of the Christian church backwards. Um, I think the, 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 the main mistake is that they interpreted um, any Orphic fragment only to the light of another Orphic fragment. And of course, there's a lot of evidence uh, in Greece and also, in, 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 as you mentioned earlier, in Egypt and in other neighboring cultures that is relevant to understand what's going on. If you ask me about Southern Italy, well, given the importance of the Pythagorean communities, of course, there, we can think that the mysteries, the, uh, the mystery cults that were celebrated there and the eschatological hopes of people being buried were much more influenced by Pythagoreanism uh, than in, in other parts of Greece. And the name of Orpheus, the mythical character that had visited the underworld, was well suited to be patron of, of all these uh, rites and doctrines. But that, that happened uh, particularly in southern Italy, doesn't mean that it was exactly the same process in other places, like in Crete or, or um, Thessaly, where other gold tablets have appeared with similar lines, but it doesn't preclude it either, right? So our evidence is really too scant to say uh, whether what was going on in southern Italy was uh, completely different or absolutely identical with Crete or Thessaly. And there's a curious um, fact, which is that in Athens, where, of course, we have many literary evidence uh, talking about Orpheus and uh, Orpheotelestai and all these things, uh, there has been no tablet. 
found. That might change tomorrow, of course, but many of all the tombs that have been excavated in Athens, none of them has furnished a single tablet. Why? Well, it's, <laughs> might be, it might be chance, but it might be that already Eleusis was uh, there covering this this uh, area, right? You could plausibly hypothesize, you couldn't prove this, but that Eleusis being this sort of um, incredibly influential, incredibly successful cult, mm -hmm. which is near Athens, is, mm -hmm. we've look, we've got Eleusis, we don't need this other stuff, right? Yeah, it's, exactly. It's or at least we, we don't need the, the gold tablets as, as amulets uh, so much as in other parts. Right. Now, you just casually mentioned the Orfeo Telestai. Mm -hmm. This is an interesting figure. Um, that is actually only mentioned a little three times. Oh. One is Plutarch in in kind of comedy like settings, right? It's always a, a kind of parody they make. Plutarch and uh, Philodemus. Uh, I think Plutarch perhaps mentions uh, oh, oh and and uh, Theophrastus. Theophrastus, when for example making a caricature of the superstitious man, he he says, well, he would go to the Orfeo Telesta every month uh, with his nurse and his children to get purified because he's always afraid of everything. So it seems a bit like a, like a caricature typical of the new comedy. You see the the yeah. well the typical initiator that who who is uh, at the end of the day uh, taking money out of credulous people. Just to back up a bit um, for our non-specialist audience, what we're talking mm -hmm. about are people who initiate you, but they're not mm -hmm. attached to a telesterion. They're not attached to a big central cult. They are itinerant and wandering. They're wandering initiators. How strong do you think the case can be made that there were wandering initiators wandering around who identified themselves maybe as Orphic in some way in this period? Well. I don't think we can prove at all that they define themselves as being Orphic or that they ever used for themselves the term of Orphiogeleste, but that's not really relevant. There, We would be uh, lost in a problem impossible to solve because we don't have any internal evidence from them, except perhaps Empedocles. Empedocles is, is, a, is a kind of um, wandering initiator, yeah. tiger type, right? Well, according um, to him, when he comes to a town, tens of thousands of people flock out to follow him and be uh, absolutely, of their diseases absolutely. and stuff like this. He, he makes a majestic portrait of himself and he has left poetry of a great quality and philosophical depth. The portrait that Plato makes of these uh, itinerant uh, priests is, is very despising, right? They are just calling to the doors of the rich men and promising them um, salvation in the afterlife, purification from their faults or the faults of their ancestors. And, um, well, he Plato doesn't seem to think very highly of them because, well, what, what, he, what he criticizes, just as the, the, the many commentator, we can talk about that later, he criticizes this, this um, idea of purification just by a right and uh, not not having anything to do with real life, with ethical behavior. It doesn't matter mm. if you're a, a good person. It just matters if you've had the right rights rituals done. And then yes, in in a way, a, a very well known scholar of Greek religion, Robert Ecker, calls that with a purposeful anachronism. But he calls that a debate between faith and works, right? Mm. Uh, which okay. the Christians had in, in the Reformation era. Yeah. Whether you save yourself 
by the by works, uh, which would be Plato, so to say, or just by believing that or initiating yourself. But of course, these these comparisons are illuminating, but they have to be done with lots of inverted commas. Yeah, because obviously we're not talking about a, a Protestant Reformation in antiquity. That would be a that's very... it. That, that, <laughs> I mean, it has been part of of the debate for the last two centuries that. Um, Orphic uh, poems and, and uh, what what we have been calling Orphic doctrines have often been seen as those who introduced for the first time in in Greece these notions that um, became uh, much, uh, fashionable with Christianity, right? The salvation in the afterlife, the dichotomy soul and body. And the divine origin of the of the humankind, and and uh, even an original sin, which caused our fall from uh, our pristine divine condition. This has aroused much interest in Orphism, but at the same time, this has been a, a great cause of distortion in our vision. We, we it's too easy to project Christianity backwards, also to to look for the origin of Christianity in Orphism, right? Mm. One of the interesting things I find about the Orphic material, talking mm -hmm. about its reception later on, mm -hmm. especially in, mm -hmm. in esotericism, mm -hmm. is how this tradition seems to have been such a fertile mirror. So many people have looked back on these scanty remains. Um, mm -hmm. these, these sort of, almost even before the, the discovery of the lamellae and the Derveni papyrus, really... Mm -hmm. The Orphism people look back on was Plato's Orphism and, you know, the, mm -hmm. the references of later yeah. Roman authors and mm -hmm. seen what they wanted to see, right? They've looked back on it and seen their own preoccupations. Exactly. Already Christian apologists, they used Orpheus sometimes as the uh, icon of paganism and the, they focused on Orpheus as the single enemy. And sometimes they saw, they presented him as the pagan prophet that had pre-announced monotheism or that had converted to monotheism in some forgeries. And this, this um, lack of copyright of Orphic material so they could be used for anything, this uh, was also um, part of the explanation of the success of Orpheus and, and all his poems from the Renaissance onwards. Um, Ficino and the Neoplatonists in Orpheus, the prophet of the Prisca Philosophia. And up to the 19th century, uh, people have been uh, looking uh, into, into Orphic materials to, to find the precedence of Christianity. Of course, there's a lot of ideology there. Some people uh, were uh, um, uh, looking at this way to show that Christianity was uh, really a, a Greek product and there was nothing of biblical revelation into that. Others uh, looking uh, into, into it that way precisely to show that Orphism, Orphism and Orphic tradition is really an un-Greek thing. There is a, a nice expression by Rode, Erwin Rode. He defined Orphism as a drop of alien blood in the in the veins of the Greeks, right? As if it was something oriental and putting into Greek uh, blood the seeds of corruption that would arrive just uh, later. Yeah, read Semitic corruption or mm -hmm. you know, exactly Eastern scary Easterners uh, with their oriental ways. Um, That's it. Although That's it. coming from a very very different standpoint, so so obviously Erwin Rode's writing 
in Germany in the 19th century, um, mm-hmm. when it was a completely standard mainstream view that Aryan people have a, a kind of national soul, which is very different from the sort of national soul you would find in uh, Middle Eastern people. And there's a purity involved in blah. All this didn't survive into the 20th century. At least it didn't survive the Second World War very well. But these kind of, of arguments are out of fashion. <laughs> They're out of fashion. But well, what we have seen in the in the work of Martin West is none of this kind of like racial theory nonsense, but just mm. looking at the evidence from the Near East where we have a lot more textual stuff because we have clay tablets and stuff like this, mm-hmm. as well as some fragments in Greek writers saying, well, this is a story I heard from Phoenicia and it's blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. blah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we seem to have the stories from the Orphic myths, right? Now we're moving to a different kettle of fish coming from Near Eastern stories or being related to Near Eastern stories. Definitely. But not not only Orphic myths, uh, also Hesiodic myths, Mm. uh, the myth of succession, which is in Hesiod and in Orphic Theogonies. You can find that in Hittite mythology or in in Canaanite mythology. So uh, in this... Orphism is as Greek or un-Greek as the rest of Greek mythology. <laughs> right, I would yeah. say. That's a good way of putting it. That's a good way of putting mm-hmm. it. Um, mm-hmm. Forget about the purity argument and let's just look at the way stories transmit mm-hmm. and, and uh, mm-hmm. develop. Taking out of the racial and uh, anti-Semitic part of that, there's still a, a debate whether it was a, a mainstream and normal um, movement in, in in classical Greece, or it was a very marginal set of ideas and rights that healthy Athenians would not even consider. Hmm. Um, just as Plato, or um, there's a famous passage in, in Euripides, Hippolytus, right? When Theseus is angry with his son and uh, calls him an, an Orphic, right? He, he tells him, go and and honor the smoke of many books, renouncing flesh and following Orpheus as your patron. Uh, that that seems to depict followers of Orpheus as really unhealthy people, as perhaps a conservative uh, Tory father would uh, tell his son, go with all these hippies, uh, yeah. without yeah. really knowing what hippie means, right? But yeah. finding that term uh, kind of um, unhealthy. Yeah, but that raises a lot more questions about ancient religion, like were the Dionysiac initiations healthy, Hmm. healthy. Because if you look at uh, the Baha'i of Europe, um, well, I guess you could say the message of the Baha'i is that don't disrespect the Dionysian mysteries Mm -hmm. because Dionysus will mess you up. But the mysteries are depicted as a horrible destabilizing force in society. Women go do things that women are not supposed to do. Um, The men are rightly upset about this because their women are not acting like women, all this kind of stuff. So that being said, no one is going to say that the Bacchic mysteries, these are outside the sphere of Greek religion. Right. No, they are, they are really very Greek. (laughs) They are, they they are in the heart of Greek culture. Uh, You cannot understand Greek culture without Dionysus. That, that was proven, uh, that was advanced by, by Otto already, Walter Otto, saying that uh, Dionysus was not a late newcomer to Greek religion, that the Bacchae is precisely a myth, not a historical tale, and that it, that shows the, the conquering character of Dionysus, not that he was a late newcomer, and that if Homer doesn't mention too much Dionysus, it's just because 
in, in heroic epics is a literary genre in which he does not belong so much, but that doesn't mean that in archaic times he was not there. At that moment, that was in 1933, his book on Dionysus, Myth and Cult, and it, this ran counter to the mainstream uh, ideas. And then the presence of Dionysus in the Mycenaean tablets, uh, when, when Michael Ventris deciphered them, that showed that Otto had been right all along, yeah. right? So, of course, it belongs to the essence of the Baki literature and the Dionysiac religion to have something extraordinary about it, to be something that is not normal in the sense that it happens every day. There's some kind of ecstasy, some kind of breaking of the usual boundaries. And uh, that, that's why, well, uh, menadic festivals were, were celebrated only at certain times and um, women who were usually repressed at home, only in these occasions they could uh, celebrate their menadic cults and, and they were secret and there's a lot of legend about them. Uh, and another offspring of this extraordinariness is precisely this secret Baki cult uh, um, in which uh, privileged afterlife was promised. And some people, like Demosthenes or uh, Theseus in European portrait or Plato, might have seen uh, these kind of itinerant Dionysian cults with despise. Demosthenes mocks his rival Eschines, saying, when you were young, you were participating in this thiasoi and running around uh, half naked. But this is just their perspective. And it, it's, a, it's a constant uh, of, of the history of religion that movements are not respectable or unrespectable per se, but depending on who has the power to define what respectable is. They were forbidden in Rome in the 69 BC, in the, in the famous decree de Bacanalibus uh, by the Senate. And, well, up to that time, they, they had been probably very respectable. And from their own words, good Roman citizens uh, could not uh, celebrate these secret Bacchic orgies, right? So you, you could project this kind of ambivalence into, into Christian sects, into witchcraft. Uh, there, there's a lot of, of uh, examples on how movements, religious movements, are, are marginal or mainstream depending on the perspective. Mm. Um, here, Perhaps we, we, can, we can think of Athens in the 5th century, okay, Pythagorean communities in southern Italy until they were expelled, but always going from place to place and from time to time. There's a good sentence by Martin West in, in his book on the Orphic poems in which he says, if somebody says the Orphics did this, the Orphics did that or believe this or believe that, he must be asked sharply. Which Orphic? Because those of, of Olbia were not the same as those of Athens and so on. If, if I were to try to boil down what you've just said, vis-a-vis um, -vis mm -hmm. the Orphics, that you've just said a lot of things that are actually relevant to the study of religion more generally um, mm -hmm. and very relevant to the study of esoteric religions, which are, of course, often esoteric only vis-a-vis -vis a norm which may change. So the, what is Absolutely. esoteric now may have been norm at one point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we want to talk about Plato as... Uh, the sign of what's normative. Plato was a freak, right? Absolutely, absolutely. That's a very good example. He he was absolutely esoteric. 
Uh, in fact, the, the, the term can be applied to his own works, as you know, there are mm. exoteric and esoteric works of, uh, by Plato, right? Until the discovery of the Dravenia Papyrus, if you had said that the Stoic style of reading that we associate, not even with the original Stoics, but actually with the sort of later Stoics, so the Hellenistic period, even the kind of mm. later Hellenistic period, of reading myths and saying, okay, these different gods actually stand for physical elements, they're, they're um, enigmata, they're, they're esoteric documents. If you had said to someone, well, this, actually, this style of reading goes back to the pre-Socratic era, they'd say, no, no, it mm. doesn't. There's no evidence for that at all. There's, none, there's no way. But this one document preserves it. So this actually shows us that this kind of reading, this, this, well, this shows us, first of all, the, the importance of being aware of how limited our knowledge of antiquity is, right? Definitely. We know just the tip of the iceberg. And uh, there's uh, perhaps 90% of ancient literature that has been lost. Mm. Um, before the Terveni Papyrus and the Olbia tablets uh, and the, the last old tablets, it was uh, a mainstream opinion in the academic world to think that what we had been calling early orphism was an invention, a projection Neoplatonics had already done in late antiquity and that modern scholars have had believed of um, a Neoplatonic construction into archaic times. The, the myth of uh, Dionysus dismembered by the Titans uh, from which men would spring with a double nature, right? Divine and mortal, Dionysiac and Titanic. Uh, that is transmitted only by Olympiodorus, Neoplatonic writer from the 6th century AD. But to the light of that passage, some passages of Plato, Plutarch, Pindar, perhaps some of the gold tablets can be interpreted. So the, this is the typical example of whether uh, you are um, an enthusiast or a skeptic or all the possibilities in the middle, which is, do we think that that myth, the, the myth of the Titans, the Zagreus myth, as others call it, um, was that myth with its anthropolo anthropological consequences existing in classical times, did Plato know that when he was referring to titanic nature in the laws? Did Pindar know that myth when he was referring to the ancient grief of Persephone? Did the defunct that were using the, the gold tablets think of that myth when they were saying, tell Persephone that I have expiated my fault, that I am freed from my from the fault of my ancestors for example uh, that's a, a key of the orphic debate and uh, there's no absolute position there are very good scholars in both sides i myself tend to side with those who believe that uh, the myth was uh, in certain variants at least uh, known in classical times but other good scholars like uh, radcliffe edmonds um, in, in the us think that it's mainly a later construction. Even after the Dervani Papyrus, for example, in the Dervani Papyrus, there's no mention at all of Dionysus. Mm. Um, so we can speculate. The Dervani Papyrus is broken. Uh, we only preserve 20 columns, but we cannot know how much were, there was later, right? Uh, the lost part, whether uh, the, the, the theogony, whether the poem went on and whether the commentary went on. 
And there are some people who will think that this poem ended up with Dionysus being sacrificed by the Titans and with the birth of mankind and others who will say there's absolutely nothing of that in the preserved part of the papyrus. And there you have um, a typical example of a debate that, as I would say, as I said, is not yet closed, but is always more refined and let's say more cordial because <laughs> in, in, one century ago people were insulting themselves. Now at least they disagree more cordially. This is good. And this actually good time to bring this part of the episode to a close okay. on an appropriate note of throwing our hands up and saying, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. This, Absolutely. Um, we don't want to fall into the trap of projecting our own certainties onto the um, baffling. Definitely. Definitely. Orphic um, material. But, but also, I, I, I would say there's a sentence of Walter Burkert that I like very much to quote because he was a courageous scholar, and he said that he didn't believe either in the Ars Neschiendi, this kind of um, approach to antiquity, which is uh, consists just in, in being very pleased at saying, I don't know, I don't know, and refusing to make any construction. I think we can play with both sides, right, and, and try to speculate and try to build uh, something with the materials that we have, but being conscious that all this is very fragile and that can change at any moment because of a change of perspective or because of the appearance of new material. Mm. Well, let's hope for both. Uh, more new material, please, mm -hmm. and um, many new changes <laughs> in perspective. Miguel Herrero, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Much appreciated. I enjoyed this very much. Goodbye. Brilliant. To our listeners, uh, until next time, stay esoteric.